showtime. Welcome to the show. Beautiful day here in Kingston, folks. Spring is well underway, and it's upon us. As I drove into the studio tonight, as always, I looked out over magnificent Lake Ontario. The sun was gleaming off the water. Just beautiful. Sun's gone now. We've got a moon on the rise. We're lucky to live where we do, aren't we? Folks, it's a great night to take this time for yourself. You've worked hard all week. You deserve this break. Take this next little hour just for yourself. So get in your most comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. I got to tell you, I'm amped up for our guest tonight. Our guest tonight has a, are you ready for this? A top secret clearance by the State Department's Agency for International Development. No kidding. Jerome R. Corsi, Ph.D., is a two-time number one New York Times best-selling author. He has written over 20 books and is currently serving as Washington Bureau Chief for InfoWars.com. Alex Jones, from 2004 to January 2017, he worked as senior staff reporter for WND.com. In 1981, folks, he published Terrorism as a Desperate Game, Fear, Bargaining, and Communication, in the terrorist event in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. Now, a mathematical game theoretical model for predicting the outcome of terrorist events. And yeah, we're going to get there tonight without question, folks. I want to hear more about this. This resulted in a top secret clearance, as I mentioned before, by the State Department's Agency for International Development, where he joined a team of psychiatrists and psychologists to develop Get, get a load of this, folks. A hostage survival training program for the State Department officials stationed overseas. Hopefully, we're going to have time to get to Benghazi as well, because I had Chris Peranto on the show, Jerome, just to let you know. And he feels that they got hung out, and justifiably, by the State Department. Right. His current book, folks, is Partners <clears throat> in Crime, The Clinton Scheme to Monetize the White House for Personal Profit. Heavy hitter tonight, folks. Welcome to the show for the very first time, my friend. Most definitely not. Well, uh, Brent, it's uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. And I've got to say, I I loved your book on JFK. I I thought it was it's one of the best written. Uh, You've got the most current information. You interviewed everybody. And I've read it several times, and I really love it. Thank you so much. And by the way, folks, I paid Jerome $10 every time he says that anywhere he goes. (laughs) At this point, I can't afford to buy food, but that's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. It's a great book. You're very kind. Should we start off with your latest book, The Clintons? Sure, anywhere you want. Yeah, let's start off there. What research led you to write this book and inform the public of what was going on in the Clinton scheme? Well, I started, it was really a tip from Charles Ortel, who's a great friend of mine in in, uh, New York, one of the top uh, Wall Street analysts, who said, uh, have you ever looked at the Clinton Foundation? It's a criminal scheme. I mean, the accounting is totally fraudulent. And I had not looked at the Clinton Foundation deeply that way. And Charles and I began to dig into it. I mean, he's brilliant on this. He was one of the people who realized that GE was overpriced and cost G billions of dollars in their stock value years ago. And uh, as we looked into it, I started publishing some articles on Charles's work. And then I decided to write this book, um, Partners in Crime, which I also do very thoroughly refer to Charles's work in it, 
Because what's clear is that the accounting, the bringing in money with the Clinton Foundation was totally haphazard. And the diversion of funds for non-philanthropic purposes. I mean, this is a foundation, you know, quote, quote, foundation that spent 5% of its proceeds on doing charitable work and was completely out of the bounds of regulatory inspection because the Clintons got a pass. And I found that entirely objectionable. How does the scheme play out? What was the inception of it? Whose brainchild was it? Well, I think it started with the Clintons um, always kind of being classic grifters. You know, they came out of the White House and Hillary said we're broke. Well, they weren't broke. They, She had, you know, $10 million publishing contract or whatever her advance was. Uh, they had plenty of money. But yet their, their psychology was that they were broke. And they decided they'd go on the international scheme of things and work with all the international grifters, criminals uh, who wanted favors from the U.S. government and in, in return for their ability to provide favors, the Clintons sold their souls for multi-million dollar contributions to the foundation. And then the accounting of the foundation, which was the crux of the issue, was fraudulent because they did not reveal or correctly you know, uh, uh, disclose the amount of money they'd received, where they'd spent it. They didn't pay taxes on it. Uh, any legitimate investigation would have closed this down because you can't run a foundation for your personal enrichment. That's, you know, fundamental to the laws of charity. And the Clintons violated that left and right. Who were some of the names that donated money to the foundation? Can you tell us some? Oh, there's there's Legion. I I have them in the book, and I'd have to you know really pull it out. But it starts you know with the 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 film, film, you know the the person in in Justra uh, uh, Frank Justra is one that comes to mind immediately. He's an entrepreneur in Canada, and he um, was in film and mining. Well, he ended up with a deal that got him twenty percent of the uranium in the United States put into Russia and a company he owned that he leveraged and sold to the Russian government. And Hillary gave 20% of our uranium uh, to this found, to this corporation. And in return, the Clinton Foundation got elaborate speaking fees and you know other gifts that were given through people in Canada to Clinton Foundation. Uh, and the uranium is now going on to Russia. Well, again, this is the kind of thing that now, you can't, as Secretary of State, be selling the natural resources of the United States to a foreign government for personal enrichment. And it should have been enough to put her in jail. You know, Comey, of course, was the FBI director at the time. We know what's just happened to Comey. He's been fired by Trump. Is this one of the reasons why he was fired? Because you didn't go after Clinton? It's very complicated with Comey because Comey, you know, was uh, originally investigating the Clintons, and then he came out with this long statement where Hillary had violated all these rules and regulations, but he, he was not going to prosecute her. Well, it wasn't his prerogative. He was he was head of the FBI, not the head of the Justice Department. He should not have made a prosecutorial judgment. And then he reopened the investigation against Hillary. He's an extremely political guy, and he seems to be running or have run the uh, FBI for his own political advancement to make sure he was at the center of the news. And now it's 
the, today's controversy is that uh, Comey wrote a letter and said that Trump uh, encouraged him to drop the investigation on General Flynn. Well, that could be obstruction of justice. Well, you know, the, the point is, look, the Democrats in the United States right today are kind of insane. They can't accept that they lost. And they are determined, almost in a radical socialist way, to do everything they can to obstruct, block Trump daily and just disrupt. Well, you know, that's the American people aren't there. And the, the point is that if, you know, if Trump said, well, could you please lay off General Flynn? Well, let's investigate Hillary Clinton. And, you know, what did um, Loretta Lynch talk to Bill Clinton about on the tarmac? What was that conversation about? Where's Weiner's uh, laptop with all the 650,000 emails transfers in the State Department? I mean, we've got a very politicized situation in the United States, and the Democrats seem to be off the edge of the cliff in their insane uh, madness to oppose Trump no matter what he does and try to impeach him. Well, Trump has not done a Watergate. He didn't... didn't there's no burglary. There's no crime. And that's, I think, the the inherent fallacy of what the Democrats are doing. The Democrats are marginalizing themselves in the United States to become a radical socialist party, much more like Tom Perez, who was a La Raza lawyer in, in Maryland. He's now head of the Democratic National Committee. Or Keith Ellison, who was a black Muslim in Chicago. These are radicals. This is not the Democratic Party of John Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey that I grew up with. You hearken back to November 22nd, 1963, and the assassination of John Kennedy. Jerome, from your perspective, is that when it all started to change? Is that when there was no reining in the machinations that were behind the scenes working to bring down the government? In, in my view, yes. And I think that um, even your book, and, and by the way, I'm serious in my praise of your book. You probably interviewed every major figure who's been involved in the Kennedy assassination investigation since 1963, including Ted Sorison, and congratulations on that. That was a great coup. And the insights in your book, I think, are really right on. I mean, now, I'm about to publish some new material. I, I'm anticipating the release of the final, hopefully, the final load of documents we're going to get out of the archives. But I think there's some very excellent recent work being done showing that in the uh, in the Zapruder film, really examining the these you know marginal parts between the sprockets, there is a clearly distinguishable uh, image of a shooter on top of the Dallas County Records Building. And I, I'm about there. to publish this. There. Yeah, let's go there right away, because we know, I think it was in 1975, if I'm not mistaken, they found a spent shell. Found a 30-odd-6 shell up there. Yeah, isn't that a coincidence, folks? The place where the president is killed, one of the suspected buildings where a sniper's nest or a sniper was presumed to have taken a shot at the president, perhaps hitting the president, they found a spent shell several years later. Coincidence? Holy cow, there's so many coincidences in this thing. I can go on forever, but let's talk about that. that well, Brent, I, I think there's a couple of videos on, there's several videos on YouTube, and I'm, I will probably next week put them in print in InfoWars, where you can see a distinguishable figure that is an assassin. 
you can see the face, you can see the gun, you can see the flashes of the, of the shooting. And uh, distinguishable above him is the arc lights, which happen to be very prominent on the corners of the uh, Dallas uh, this records building, the Morris, the Dallas County uh, records building, which is, which is, by the way, a police-controlled building. The, the sheriff's office was in there, so the shooter had to have been authorized by law enforcement to be up there or at least acknowledged by law enforcement. You won't, you won't get on that roof without a law enforcement approval. And it's clear in this video, in these videos, embedded in the Zapruder uh, film, but in these marginal parts, you can see the shooter repeatedly firing. And I've done analysis of it, and it, it times with what we know to be the actual hits that were taken. So I'm completely confident this is legitimate. Yeah, the magic bullet theory, folks, just doesn't fly. Uh, I call it the Cirque du Soleil bullet because it is so right. mystical. It's so bizarre. It's absolutely so bizarre. Now, this building, folks, was behind the motorcade. If you're looking at the front of the motorcade, you would be looking to just to the right of the motorcade uh, from behind and the triangulation of fire that is presented so well in the movie JFK. This would be one of those points as well. Now, a friend of ours has just passed away, Sherry Feaster. God love her. Uh, yes, I know. I was deep, I met her several times. I was deeply saddened. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. Broke my heart, actually. She yeah. was responsible uh, for me getting my book out, actually. She called me. She said, Bring yeah. your family, you're part of the JFK community. We want to publish your book. And, and may she rest in peace. And um, uh, yeah. uh, Amen. What do you think about her work? Uh, I always thought it was brilliant. I mean, she was the first to do the kind of blood splatter analyses, and she analyzed that the first the wound where the head flap occurred and all the tissue came out of the head of Jack Kennedy was really an entry shot from the front. And by the way now, Brent, I'm going to publish also, uh, there are frames we've found in the Zapruder film in which Jackie tries to reach into the back of Jack Kennedy's head, and she can reach her hand into it because all the blood, the brain matter is blown out of it. And that's just before she freaks out and, and goes on. But the, the frames are clear. See, what's happening now with better technology is we're able to really analyze again these films and coming up, come up with a whole new generation of conclusions. And I think it's going to be absolutely clear I also saw some very brilliant work done recently. I'm going to publish that shows that the uh, black dog man, you know, the, the was really an African-American. He'd had uh, lunch with his wife and baby that day. They were eating some, you know, out of a bag lunch. He got up and walked down the stairs, and she's photographed with the baby subsequent to the attack. But it was clear that the shot that that came as an entry wound to the neck had to have been a frontal shot. And it validates what Tosh Plumley had said, that it did break the windshield and was a, a, a front entry wound from the left. So you have the first two shots being from the, the roof of the Dallas County Records Building at a 45-degree angle, which, remember, that was always the mystery of that shot. Because 
Texas School Book Depository is like about a you know, 15 to 20, 25 degree angle, much lower. And secondly, the shot that came in from the neck had to have gone through the windshield because none of the respondents, you could see this black dog man, who he is, coming down, and he did not respond to that shot. So that shot did not come from behind any of those witnesses. It came from the front, frontal entry, and it was one that broke through the windshield and created like a pencil hole entry wound into the windshield that was immediately covered up because the Secret Service took the vehicle away and got rid of the evidence. Yeah, they washed it out completely to get rid of the brain matter and everything else, but, you know, it's a crime scene. It was a, it's a crime scene. And they did this. And what's clear, and I think, you know, this is why I'm so, so focused on that yet today, you know, more than 50 years later, is because it was the beginning of this whole deep state. It was the whole idea that a, um, a cabal, the U.S. intelligence agencies and military, could take out a president, a president who, in fact, had wanted disarmament, who was working with Khrushchev to um, basically engage in much more peaceful negotiations with then the Soviet Union, who gave this brilliant speech at American University when they wanted to go fight in Vietnam. And I think John Newman's work is brilliant on this. As a matter of fact, a very good friend of mine, Alan Dale's working with him doing research. He goes to the archives all the time. We talk nightly, and his books are... John Newman's books are amazing, his latest books. the reason He's just writing this new series, and I'm yeah. spellbound by them. They're just so good. I mean, yeah. this guy's John Newman's together. a brilliant researcher. He's terrific. And I think there's so many in the community. I mean, I'm, you know, the, I'm not one of the people who engages so much in the you know, debates, the fights between the people. I, I encourage everybody's research. I think everybody has different insights. And the, that's why I so admire your interviews over the years and what you wrote in your book. And, and I do have to say, I, I really, I wrote this. I mean, I have to say it. Uh, you have the most current insights of all these major researchers in your book. So if somebody wanted to read one book and really get right up to speed, on the most advanced research of the Kennedy assassination, they should read your book. And as I mentioned before, folks, every time he mentions that, it cost me 10 bucks. So I think we're up to <laughs> close to $2,000 at this point. Jerome Corsi is our guest today. No, I mean, I, I seriously beat it. Thank you. You, you couldn't pay me enough to say this. I mean, I, I don't, I don't I say things I don't believe. Right, I couldn't pay you enough because there's no. No, I, I don't say things I don't believe. I want to talk about YouTube as well and what's happened and yes. the, the crushing down of free speech right across the board. And uh, But I just want to tell folks, folks, we're speaking to Jerome. Jerome Corsi tonight. Yeah, isn't that fantastic? You know, he's got books called Partners in Crime, the Clinton Scheme to Monetize the White House for Personal Profit. Who really killed Kennedy 50 years later? Stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. Hunting Hitler. New scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Germany. And if we have time, you better believe we're going to go there. Atomic Iran. Now, this one is personal to me because I saw the scars close up and personal, so I know all about this regime. It is not a pretty regime, folks. It's this not is a nasty, regime. nasty place. Absolutely nasty, and we should be so grateful that we live in a quasi-free environment. Let's jump to YouTube. Now, my channel's been hit. Alex Jones's channel's been hit. Um, Roger Stone was on last week. 
and he was talking about his channel's been hit. Anything to do with an alternate view of politics, JFK assassination, conspiracy, anything along those lines, that's it. No monetization. However, if you put a stupid cat video up, if you put a makeup, and God knows I could use a makeup overview, you put a makeup view up, uh, a video up, you're okay, or a gaming video. But anything with thought, it's a no-no. Your perspective, Jerome. Well, see, I think we're finding, and I've been finding this, I've been, I've been really writing a lot lately about this net neutrality issue. And the point is, look, uh, net neutrality does not mean open access to the Internet. What you've got is you've got right now uh, George Soros and uh, Google and the far left trying to engage in censorship to block out conservative views. And anybody who wants to talk about the New World Order or the Deep State or reveal any of the you know, truths about uh, the great mysteries we've been through politically, the Vietnam War, the Kennedy assassination, 9-11, you know, you're immediately branded and uh, as fake news and you're, you're, you're censored and hounded. Now, the point is net neutrality, and this is something I've been fighting, is I really applaud what this Agent Pi is doing in the FCC, and that is get the regulation out of the FCC. See, what net neutrality did is said the ISPs, the Internet Service Providers, all have to be equal in treatment. So we're plugged in by, you know, uh, Verizon or you're plugged in by AT&T or you're plugged in by OptOnline, however you get your Internet service. But the gateway providers, Google, uh, Yahoo, I mean, any of the, you know, the big ones, Twitter, Facebook, they're not regulated. They can have censorship and then demand that the ISPs cover them equally. That's why George Soros funded it. It's not net neutrality. It's a plan to have Internet censorship. And I want the Internet to be a freewheeling place where people can contest even the wildest ideas and have them be examined and debated, but rise or fall on their merits, not rise and fall on whether or not somebody decides they're politically correct. Exactly I mean, right. I mean, how many guys died on the shores of Normandy and all the wars before that and all the wars after to protect that basic right, not only in Canada, but in the United States as well? And we're doing well, we're very much, we're, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Canada. We're, we're really too kindred countries and we've been that we've been allies and we've been kindred for a long time i consider myself to be very close to canada and a very deep admirer and, and lover of canada and supporter of canada uh we have both cherished freedom we might have some different views of what that means we may disagree on issues but we fought all the major wars together and we have fought for the same principles now on the issue of YouTube or the Internet. Uh, okay, so somebody wants to say, you know, space aliens. Well, it, over time, it may turn out that there were space aliens, you know, 3,000 or 5,000 or however many years ago. That, Jerome, you know, sorry to interrupt and, you, but I, I can guarantee you we have aliens. 
Right. Except they live in Ottawa. We call them politicians here. Well, I consider them Democrats, but that's another issue. <laughs> but, but look, the point is, let's not outlaw the idea. Let's let's let somebody get in and argue it. And if they can make sense and draw followers, fine. If they can't, then they'll rise or fall on their own merit. I mean, I'm a, I was a student of John Stuart Mill when I was in Harvard. I mean, I really loved the idea that debate has to be robust. And to protect debate, you've got to protect ideas you don't want to hear. That's the real test of it. Sorensen told me, you know, to solve the Cuban Missile Crisis, he had to put himself in Khrushchev's shoes. Well, and That's you know, the the JFK, JFK had lots of faults, but he, and I knew him as a kid. I was close to the politics of the time. My father was in labor unions, and um, Kennedy had a great brilliance in that he was able to tolerate and invite many different ideas, and he would listen to them, and he would take them, you know, seriously and debate them in his own mind. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, even if you go back and listen to some of the tapes, which I have done, and he brings in the generals. The generals are saying, you know, we've got to invade Cuba. We've got to go to war. And, and John Kennedy is saying, he gets up and leaves. And he says, I don't, I'm not satisfied that we've thought through all the alternatives. I want more, <laughs> more alternatives on the table. Well, that's the... That's the quest of intellectual achievement, period. Let's get all the alternative ideas on the table. Let the ideas compete. Let the people compete with the Why should we be afraid if someone says, well, you know, I've got an LGBT agenda, or I've got this idea. Debate them all. Have them all open. Invite them all to be considered. And keep an open mind as to what comes out of it. The free exchange of ideas. And that's what yeah. I feel YouTube is trying to clamp down on and control. You know, a stunning, stunning statistic came by my way. And 95% of millennials get their news and information from YouTube. They don't go to print anymore. They don't go to television, any other media. They go strictly to YouTube. If YouTube starts controlling what can and cannot be seen by them, we're in for a catastrophe. There's exactly. No new ideas. Well, and that's the whole point that Google wants to do. That Google wants to, this fake news, you know, to, to decide that InfoWars is presenting fake news. Well, I can see as much fake news coming out of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the champion stories that turn out not to be true because they're politically in favor with the editorial policy of the newspaper. Now, fine, let the Wall Street Journal have its point of view. Let the Washington Post have its point of view, but also let InfoWars have its point of view. Let, you know, Breitbart.com and all the others that are out there and, and, the, and the, the small little you know, bloggers who want to gain an audience. Some of those may in the future become media giants because they have a point of view and they're courageous and persistent and develop it. But that's what that that's why the First Amendment, the, the fundamental idea John Stuart Mills would be if we're going to advance as a society, we have to be willing to challenge our ideas. And when the challenge is uncomfortable you know, you say, oh, well, I really hate that idea. That's the one you've got to support being debated. Completely agree. We have to be able to entertain all ideas and let us decide. Don't 
I, you know what I hate about mainstream media and um, all the media outlets? They treat us like we're children. They want to put their own spin on it. They want to paint it their own way. I just wish they would just tell us the news, treat us like adults. Tell us their opinion, sure, but don't spin it to, well, you know, where you've got Godzilla fighting King Kong. It's insanity. I agree. Well, I agree. And, you know, look, I'm a combination of kind of conservative and libertarian. I kind of combine a little bit of both of them. Uh, and I have, you know, strong views in terms of the importance of family and raising children and the other issues. But at the same time, you know, I'm not convinced that my way of doing it is the only way. I'm not convinced that, you know, God didn't make all of us. and We've got to all tolerate each other. Uh, I've known other cultures. I speak four or five languages. I've traveled the world. I'm not about to go to another country, another culture, and tell them what they should do or how they should behave in terms of their culture and their beliefs. Uh, what makes the world, I think, uh, really challenging and, and possibly has a future for it is the fact that we can disagree and that we can look at things differently, even things we care deeply about, even things that we think are really bad ideas. We've still got to, the, the more you think that, the more you've got to listen to it. Now, that's why I think all of the debates on the Internet that we've had, look, if we'd had the mainstream media on the Kennedy assassination, we'd have had over 50 years ago a statement that, you know, this was, it was Lee Harvey Oswald with the, you know, with a Manlicher-Cattle rifle that was misaligned. Three brilliant shots alone killed Jack Kennedy. You know, that would have been the, anybody who disagreed with that would have been submitted to prison or thought reform. Well, now we're about to have the release of documents, and we're 50-some years down the road. We understand more deeply that the intelligence agencies are a deep state that are out to control and out to, you know, invest in disinformation, and that we all should have distrust of the intelligence agencies in every one of our countries. Yeah, I think we have to challenge everything. I think right. that's, that as democracies, I think we the people, the three best words in the whole world, as far as I'm concerned, ever written, we the people, we have the power. You know, folks, I always say this, that every one of us has a small business, well, big business. <laughs> it's called right. the government. But we're the CEOs. We're the ones in charge. Yes. We don't work for them. They work yes. for us. The states were sovereign, not the federal government when the Constitution was formed. And, you know, the, the people are sovereign, ultimately. And the, the issue is when you, you know, you come down to it, look, I've done an awfully lot of, um, I've been on Coast to Coast AM and recently on, frequently on North Korea. And I have to keep reminding people that I am not a neocon. I'm not advocating war. That, you know, I think there are just wars. and There are wars we have to fight. But I think we, even the best war, we have to fight reluctantly. Because it's not going to go the way we thought it would. It's going to change us fundamentally. We didn't come out of World War II more free. We came out of World War II more ourselves controlled. You know, and, and if we, okay, you say, oh, it's a great idea. Let's just go, you know, we'll take out North Korea's sites and, It'll be over in 24 hours, and we'll be done with that problem. Well, it doesn't happen that way. It's not, it's not, we suddenly justify North Korea to get more nuclear weapons. We give them an okay that 
we really were as bad as they thought we were. And it doesn't turn out as we thought it did. And we didn't don't we don't get all the sights. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. You know, we touched on Iran before. How should we be handling Iran? I loved your book, by the way, Atomic Iran, folks, how the terrorist regime bought the bomb and American politicians. How should well, we I've been have? so angry at American politicians for allowing these rogue regimes to have access to uh, nuclear material because they lie and they end up making bombs. And when you look at the agenda of Iran, and by the way, it's totally distinguished. The Iranian people are the Persian people. They're Zoroastrians. They, they were not you know, radical Islamic terrorists, and they never have been. They're a very cultured people who do extremely well outside of the control of the mullahs. But you've got this regime, and the regime is determined to wipe out Israel and to create havoc, nuclear havoc, and if, if they get a weapon, they're, they're not going to stockpile it. They're going to use it. Absolutely, folks. And I can tell you that it's only 5%, less than 5% of the population of Iran that wants anything to do with the current regime. They were bamboozled, to put it mildly, in 1979 by the Ayatollah. You had this messianic figure coming in saying that he's going to keep democracy. He's going to oust the Shah with his uh, Savik who was the uh, secret police at the time, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. So imagine the Pope coming over and saying, I'm going to make everything wonderful. And all of a sudden, he gets into power, and all these restrictions. Women now had to cover. They never had to cover before. Women are thrust out of uh, work as politicians. They're thrust out of work as judges. I interviewed Shermini Badi, who was the Nobel Peace Prize winner of Iranian human rights. She can't even go home because she's under death threat. She hasn't seen her husband in 20 years because they won't let him out of the country to see her. This is a horrible regime, folks. Well, and and when, you look at the, when you look at the Green Revolution, which has occurred in Iran several different times, and most recently, I think in 2009, when Ahmadinejad lost the presidential election or won the presidential election, stealing the presidential election the second time, uh, it's tragic if Iran had a Second Amendment, Iran would be a free country right now. And that's the problem. And, you know, the issue is, I think, in terms of all people, that you, you can't trust governments. That's, I think, one of the things our founding fathers had at their core was that you can't trust governments. And we tend today to start trusting governments. They look to government to be the solution. Why does government solve this problem? Why don't we have a law passed that will solve it? It doesn't solve the problem. And it, Why don't we just watch a silly cat video instead of tuning into InfoWars? Well, and, you know what I mean? You know, I, and that's what yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I, I like the idea that the states can be much more powerful, hopefully, in the future. And, and by the way, I think what's going on right now against Donald Trump is like a, a coup d'etat by the deep state and the Democrats who have really lost their minds and have decided they just can't stand anything about Donald Trump. Well, you know, that that's 
for eight years, many of us were not that fond of Barack Obama, but I always respected him as president of the United States and, and, and expressed the respect for the office that it was due. So I might criticize him, but I never <clears throat> crossed the line into this kind of insane hatred, which the Democrats today seem to have fallen into, which is, I think, going to be to their detriment. Uh, you know, we've got to be able to have a uh, – the left today, the political left today has the danger of moving into an ideological intolerance, which is only perceived in socialist regimes that have thought reform programs and other kinds of corrective actions if you don't agree with their predominant conclusions on every independent issue. And it goes right back to what we were talking about, about the First Amendment, the importance of having – robust debate, and the Internet. And so when it comes to net neutrality and other issues, I'm fighting very hard to have the Internet remaining a unregulated free-for-all in which people can express what they want to express with very few limitations. I agree. I agree completely. I, I think it, it should have the ability... I mean, this is new to us. We're transitioning from the industrial age to the technology age. And when you're starting to control information that can zoom around the world in seconds and telling people what they can and what they can't watch, this is so dangerous. It is so dangerous on a global scale right now. Now, I want to talk some more about Hillary Clinton and the State Department. I had Chris Peranto on the show, folks. Chris Peranto, you can find the show in our archives. He was one of the fellows that was in Benghazi in 2012, September 11th, and uh, if you've ever seen the movie 13 Days, 13 Days, isn't that funny? There's a Sorensen reference to the movie. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Benghazi. That's good. Both are good movies. One's about the Cuban Missile Crisis. One is about the crisis that took place in Benghazi. Chris Peranto was one of the guys that was on the ground in three firefights that night. He came on the show, he said, Hillary Clinton let us down, essentially. The State Department hung us out to dry. Now, you've done some work with the State Department going back into the 80s, how to survive being captured. Was that a different beast back then than it was under Hillary? Uh, well, um, first of all, I've always been suspect of the State Department. <laughs> I've always wanted to fire two-thirds of them, so <laughs> we start out a little bit. At odds, even though I was trying to save their lives, I thought they should have been fired. Uh, fewer State Department people, I think, would be a better world. Um, look, Hillary's State Department was like the entire Obama and Hillary. They were very leftist-oriented, very politically run. Now, the problem was that it started when Hillary changed sides and Obama changed sides. I've done a lot of work with the Citizens Commission on Benghazi. I've done a lot of writing about this. And we decided we were going to depose Gaddafi. And we started supporting the radical Muslim terrorist groups and militias, including the Muslim Brotherhood, in Libya, and arming them, and then combining with NATO to bomb Gaddafi. When Gaddafi had offered to depose, to peacefully step down, we wouldn't accept that. Now, that completely destabilized Libya. 
And by the time, I mean, what, you know, what, what the ambassador was doing at that time, Christopher Stevens was doing, he came into Benghazi before he was ambassador to run weapons. He was running weapons for the United States, you know, through Qatar and other places into Libya to arm the militia to fight Gaddafi. And, you know, eventually he was trying to get control of those because we lost a whole bunch of surface-to-air missiles that, you know, were very, very dangerous and were getting in the hands of terrorists in Syria. And um, Christopher Stevens was basically a CIA State Department operative running guns into Libya to support the militia who were trying to depose Gaddafi. Well, those militia turned on us. And then they ended up, and, and Hillary would not support the embassy. She wouldn't, you know, in Tripoli, she wouldn't take this outpost in Benghazi and fortify it. Christopher Stevens begged her to do this. There's any number of cables and other missives saying, you know, we're vulnerable out here. She didn't do it. And then the Ansar al-Sharia, which one of the largest militia, al-Qaeda supported, rose up, and in a planned attack, a clear terrorist attack, they killed the ambassador and three other Americans bravely who were fighting to save the ambassador. Now, the 13 Hours movie, if, you, if people haven't seen it, and I've seen it several times, it's very difficult to watch, but it's a compelling movie. It needs to be watched and understood because we had the American government in the final analysis for political reasons, abandoning these people to die, which is absolutely, you know, completely unconscionable. Barbaric, barbaric as far as I'm concerned. And, Me you know, too. They had people on the tarmac, folks. They had a quick reaction force, all set to go. They were all set to go. They were told to stand down, to go and rescue these people. And these people were under fire all night. As you said, three lost their lives. And it, it, the whole thing is just a shambles. And to me, it, it falls right on the lap of the State Department and um, how inadequate a job they did. And they just wanted them to disappear. That was Chris's question to me. He said, I would love to ask Hillary Clinton if she wanted me to die that night so there would be no traces. It's terrifying they, what's happened. Well, the, the answer would have been yes. Yeah. You know, he was disposable, and the others were disposable. That was the that was the Clinton. You know, they were they were going to run this lie about it was a movie protest, which was a complete lie, for political reasons because they didn't want to admit that this was a terrorist attack. Remember, at that time, Obama was running for re-election on that we had saved GM and we'd killed Osama bin Laden, and he wanted to say that terrorism was dead. Well, terrorism is not dead. And what you you faced, I remember I was sitting in one of the congressional committees and listening to the State Department people say in the military, well, we couldn't refuel the airplanes you know, coming out of Italy to save, to fly over, trying to save them in Benghazi. Well, the pilots I knew would have said, I don't care if you can refuel this airplane or not. I'm going to go over there. I have to ditch it in the Mediterranean. You'll buy another airplane. But I'm not sitting here while, the, while these people are dying. And no, that's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. And that was the key thing. And I think that's what really 
ultimately is one of the key things that cost Hillary the election. Uh, apologies who are getting emotional over it, but I mean it's the it's the issue where you understand that you know we had politicians Hillary, Obama, where they put their own political aspirations above the need to do the right thing to defend Americans. I agree completely. Let's talk about the great work you've done searching for Hitler. Now, I've had the honor of having Ephraim Zuroff on the show, who is uh, Simon Wiesenthal's biggest Nazi hunter. He's completely frustrated with governments around the world. Of course. He and others think that the Nazi ideology has never been killed. The Nazis, of course, you know, that we won the war. But the ideology lived on through the rat lines, through uh, the Gellin group, etc., etc. Do you feel that Hitler was able to escape? And did of course you aid and abet, abet him to do that? Well, there's a couple of really, um, the real story is not only did Hitler escape, but we allowed Hitler to escape. It was Alan Dulles and the others in the American government who were bringing over in Operation Paperclip thousands of Nazi scientists and putting them to work. Uh, the Galen organization, which came over as a whole, uh, we had, you know, I've written about this extensively. We had the Harriman brothers and the Bush family supporting on Wall Street the rise of Hitler, funding Hitler. We're fully engaged with the Nazis from the very beginning. Now, the, 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 from the time I was a child, I listened to this Hitler story, you know. So Hitler here is, he's killed 60 million people. He's, you know, I mean, horrendously murdered 6 million Jews, which is still one of my nightmares of my life. I've been to all the Yad Vashams and the, and the Holocaust museums I could go to, and I've been to Israel many times. It's still a nightmare for me. And at the end of his life, he says, oh, I, I, I you know, I, I repent. I'm sorry. I should, you know, I, I repent. And I'm going to marry this woman now. And, you know, I really failed. I'm going to kill myself. Well, Hitler doesn't do that. He's a, he's a mad psychopath. And he think, he blames the, the German people for not being equal to him. He says, I'm getting out of Dodge and I'm going to Argentina and rebuilding this movement. And of course he did. The idea yeah, that he committed suicide, it's, it's not built into that psychology. And, and you know, all the evidence that I started researching, my wife is Argentinian, I speak Spanish, I, you know, I'm very familiar with all the stories in Argentina, the books written that, Ar- that Hitler had escaped Argentina. What was the triggering point for me was a couple of things. When this, this uh, archaeologist from Connecticut went over and got to look at the Hitler skull, found out it was something like a 30-year-old woman. And then it was absolutely clear that, you know, the, the Hitler's body had never been found. I started really looking deeply into the Russian sources. Uh, and then the FBI came out and they started releasing the documents, which showed that through the 1950s, we were actively searching for Hitler and had absolutely precise information as to where he was. You know, in Bariloche, and the submarine, I found in the National Archives, it had been misfiled. I found the submarine files where they brought over Hitler. And the and the U.S. Naval Intelligence in Argentina told U.S. Naval Intelligence in Washington, this ship just brought us Hitler. They took the crew 
back to Washington to debrief them. I had to search for years to find the records. And it's clear that that crew, which showed up in Argentina, it surfaced in you know the, the Mar de Plata, the big port, it surfaced. And the, the sailors had you know, pesos and Argentinian cigarettes, well, and, and Spanish dictionaries. Well, those are not standard issue of the Nazi Navy. <laughs> they landed Hitler. They come in to say, you know, well, here we are. We surrender at the end of World War II. And Hitler's taken into Argentina, and I'm sure died comfortably in Argentina. Unfortunately. In places where he stayed or documented. I wrote extensively about it. And then I was very pleased the History Channel picked it up and even took my the name of my book, Hunting Hitler, and ran the series. And I yeah, think it's a it, great it, series. We're watching it right now, actually. It's fabulous. Well, they did a great job. I've got to say, they really did a fantastic job of taking the various leads I was developing, but they had the resources to go to these places to film them, to hunt them out, to show people. And I think, you know, the, the Nazi ideology has not left. And it's it's still, you know, a very strong, important force, which... Has you know, it as a cons- to the American culture, to the American government at all, Jerome? Well, see, as a conservative, they always say, you know, you're... you're the, when they, the left always says, well, you're a Nazi and the like. Well, it's not the case. I mean, I've... I've sponsored families from El Salvador, brought them over and gotten them citizenship. My wife, born in Argentina, was an Italian, born in Argentina. Father fought in World War II for Italy and for the Nazis and for us. I brought him back to Italy. I mean, you know, my view is that the the core of Nazism, which is a race-based kind of eugenics, is one of the most detrimental types of thinking human beings can engage in. Uh, my view is that God gave us all life and that we're all uniquely gifted, regardless of color, race, you know, sex, any other characteristics. You've got to treasure all life. And, you know, Agreed. Uh, and, and all religions. I mean, I'm not anti-Muslim. I walked 300 miles with the Iranians, Muslims, for freedom, from from the Liberty yes. Bell to Washington, yeah. D.C., after I wrote that book. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think Muslims can be beautiful people. I, I'm opposed to hate. I'm opposed to, you know, wanting to kill or wanting to draw these distinctions among people. What, to me, is the nightmares, the pogroms, where the Germans invaded even Russia, and killed villages as a whole, children, women, aged, I mean, everybody. It was slaughter. And no human being is capable of doing that, coming out of it, not psychologically scarred to their core. Uh, We have to have among human beings a tolerance where we can be different, but we accept our differences. And as long as people are going to respect differences, not engage in violence, not engage in crime, not engage in hatred and other issues, we have to tolerate the differences and encourage the differences. And now, keep a free press. And, and keep a free press. Free press. We've only got a few minutes you know, left. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, I, I get, I get to say, ahead, people say, I'm mean, you know, conservative, they want to paint me as a Nazi. It's just not true. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln was a conservative, if you want to 
go back there, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, so. it's the fundamental human values that we've got to cherish and, yes. and foster. And I'm conservative in that I, I do think that family structures and various traditional principles work best for human beings. But I'm not going to exclude that there's other possibilities, and I'm not going to, you know, wrong people as long as they responsibly want to pursue what they believe in. We both have a very close friend, Tom Lipscomb. Buzz, I yes. if you could say a, a few nice words about Tom, because he's just a great guy. He's well, Tom's a genius. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He found the smart. New York, oh, New York Times books, and he's got a wonderful new work coming out which is going to completely revise our whole idea of World War II. You know, and, and I'm going to leave it to Tom to reveal what it is, but he's given me the inside of it. It's going to be a movie. It's going to be a play. It's going to be a brilliant book. And I had Tom, Tom on talking about it a couple of weeks ago. Did you? Yeah, I did. He was fantastic. As oh, he's, he's amazing. I've, I've known Tom for years. Tom and I went back to the beginning of the swift boat days when we were opposing John Kerry and we did a lot of research together, and uh, he's a great treasure, and I've really been honored to be his friend. Tom is, um, just to let you know, folks, um, a publisher, a book publisher, but he's, he's more than that. He went down in 67 uh, when Sheikh Guevara was, was killed and brought back his personal diaries, and there's a whole story around that. Um, that's cloak and dagger, and it, that should be a darn movie. <laughs> it should, really be. should be. Fabulous. And you can find his show as well in the archives, folks. We've been speaking with uh, Jerome Corsi tonight, partners in crime, the Clinton scheme to monetize the White House for personal profit, one of the books. He's got over 20 who really killed Kennedy 50 years later. Stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. Hunting Hitler, we touched on that as well. New scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Nazi Germany. And atomic Iran, the country that just won't go away. How the terrorist regime bought the bomb and American politicians. I'd like to invite you back anytime you want. You are more than welcome, my friend. I really uh, my friend, it's a great you. pleasure. I really enjoyed it, and thank you very much. Thank you, and best God of bless. You. you too. God bless to you, to my friend. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. We'll see you all next time.